Hello everyone and welcome to Vessels of Kingsgrave and this is the first installment of a brand new Lord of the Rings reread. VOK actually did one a few years ago and we thought it was a good time to bring in a new crew to do another one with hopefully different takes and new perspectives. And also uh, because these books are just really good so it's always nice to reread them. So today we will cover the first six chapters of book one of the Fellowship of, of the Ring. Um, as usual, and since uh, it's been published, like I don't even know how many years ago, the podcast is full of spoilers for anything in uh, basically the Lord of the Rings universe. And that includes probably The Hobbit and The Silmarillion and the movies and everything. Um, I'm uh, Mary, also known as Nymeria on Discord, um, and today I'm joined by Alex. Hi, I'm Alex, also known as Iwendil. And we also have Tanya. Hi, I'm Tanya, I'm also known as Silence. And finally, Zach. Hello, this is Zach, also known as Alias on various internet places. <laughs> Great. So I don't think any of us were on the um, original team uh, that did the, the first reread. Uh, or maybe uh, with uh, maybe Alex and Tanya, you did some of them. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't I... participate. I read along, but I wasn't I wasn't on the podcast yet. It was it was actually the series that got me to join the forums initially. Oh, that's awesome. oh really exciting. <laughs> I might have been on like an episode or two, but I don't remember to be honest. Too much be yeah. okay. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot <laughs> has one. happened since like we did the full uh lot of the full a song of ice and fire reread actually oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> in the meantime. So yes, this is exciting. So um, I thought we could just uh give a bit uh say a bit about uh our own history with um with the books and uh, how we got into them uh is this your like first reread 10th reread i don't know and uh how we feel rereading them now uh, how is it going for you guys um i so my very first brush with talking was actually when i was six i got the hobbit from the library and um and uh, I started reading it, and in the first sentence, I came across the word Hobbit, which didn't bother me in the title, I don't know, but in the first sentence, it bothered me. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm going to ask my parents what a Hobbit is. And they told me, well, you're going to have to imagine that. And I thought, that sounds like a waste of time. I don't know why I'd read books about things that don't exist. I'm just not going to read this. And then I put it aside. Amazing. And... <laughs> <laughs> I love that, how things changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's my first brush with Tolkien. And then at some point when I was maybe like eight or something, seven or eight, um, I tried to talk my dad into reading to me and he was like, you're a bit too old for this, but I will read to you if I get to choose the book. And I was like, yeah, sure, it'll probably be lame because you're choosing it. Um, and then he decided to start reading The Lord of the Rings to me. Um, and I loved it and I got really excited and got really into it. And, and 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 basically got so frustrated by like how slowly he was reading that I just or like he was only reading in the evenings and stuff that I just you know started reading it by myself um and yeah and that started um I don't know made a huge impact in my life overall in a number of ways like I um I went to to an event in 2005 in Birmingham 
um, organized by the Tolkien, uh, Tolkien Society, um, where I sort of got introduced to like the whole, I don't know, official fandom, if you will, um, and um, have since been actively involved in uh, Tolkien societies in a variety of countries. And um, Tolkien is probably the main reason I'm studying in the UK. And I've met a lot of people through it. And it's sort of, yeah, it's had like a huge impact on my life. And I've reread the books over the years, but I'm basically sort of constantly, because I'm in the fandom, I'm constantly sort of engaged with it anyway. So yeah, uh, that's me. That's awesome. I I think these books had a lot of impact on a lot of us and a lot of like, I think we're all basically the same age. And um, for me, it was a book, uh, it, it, it was a book that my, my parents had read and that they introduced to me as well. Um, but I actually hated it in French. Uh, I just, I just <laughs> like, I took them with me on, on holidays so that I would be like forced to read them because I really wanted to read them and to be a part of this. But, um, I, why, I only, sorry, why did you want to read them if you were like, I, I don't know. It's just, I think mm-hmm. I'd watched the movies by then and oh, it was right. really going against like my philosophy to to have seen the movies before I read the book. And I, I was that. I was deep in, deep into fantasy at the time already. And I, I just I, I thought you you've got to have read um like those. It's just you you have to read the Lord of the Rings. But I found it really hard in French actually just kind of boring and long and I couldn't I finally did it, I think. I'm not even sure. Um, and then um, maybe three years ago, I uh, bought the books in English. I was already in VOK by then, and I had started uh, reading A Song of Ice and Fire in, in English and, and lots of other books. And I, I was like, maybe like the challenge of reading them in the original language and the fun it is uh, to, to have to like um, do this in another language. Uh, might be enough to keep you interested and that's what I did and it was, it was actually way easier than it had ever been in French I think I think Tolkien um, Tolkien's way of writing uh, doesn't translate w- very well and it forces the translator to some extent to like uh, have even longer phrases and even um, like Everything that descript that is descriptive is just kind of worse in French to me at least. Um, whereas in English it feels almost simply written, like it's not too convoluted. It's not. It's just. It actually reads very well, at least for me. Um, so this is my second read in English. So probably third read total, uh, if I even finish them in French, which, which I'm not actually sure. <laughs> Um, my story is more similar to what Marie is describing than than Tanya. I was never really like a huge fan of this material. Um, my first encounter with Lord of the Rings was also when I was like uh, six or seven, because I was that was I was th- that age when uh, the movies were coming out, and randomly, like I saw some Gollum scene playing on a TV in a hotel. Um, and I was like, this is scary. This is not something I ever want to experience. This looks weird. Never going to see that again. <laughs> and I had no idea what it was uh, at that point. 
Um, then much later, I had at this point, like when I was like 11 or 12, just been a fan of fantasy for a while. Um, and I knew about the Lord of the Rings at this point, and it was something I wanted to read. So I did, and I liked it, but it wasn't something that like profoundly affected me. So I liked reading them. And then I saw the movies properly after that, and liked those a lot too. And they were always just something like I liked for most of my life for a long time, like until very recently. Um, and I, you know, I'd spent a lot of time like talking to people who really liked them a lot and just like spending a lot of time just listening to like lore masters talk about all these names, like talking about like Glorfindel and like talking about like the Silmarils and all this stuff and like really being into that, but not ever personally diving in. Um, and it wasn't until last year, actually, where I decided to, to properly read them again. Uh, after having read a ton of other fantasy, like I've read like just a stupid amount of other like modern fantasy books. And I was just struck at that point in my life, how different they are, these books from all that stuff and how profoundly like meaningful they feel to me um, at this point. And having read them, like they just have like a, a certain mythic quality to them that I, I hadn't appreciated before. And I think part of that is the way they're told just like on a very technical level. Um, they are told with this third person omniscient voice, which isn't really used anymore. And it's more evocative of how a story would be told if you were telling it around like a campfire, like the way that like a uh, Homeric myth would be related or like Beowulf, which of course Tolkien himself was very invested in. So you can kind of get the connection to that. But it, it this story like feels like a myth to me. And that, and that was really special to me reading it again and appreciating that. And I, I love that. And I think, I don't know, like I've also something else that I've appreciated uh, about just different fantasy settings at this point in my life is I love settings where you have this palpable sense of like something has been lost. And there's such a, there's such a sense of that in these books, like this feeling that like the world used to be great and we're kind of at the end of all those things. You get that so strongly when they're traveling through the Northern kingdoms in this book or when they're in Rohan and you hear the stories about all the old great Kings and the way things used to be like, I was just, I was just blown away by that reading it again. I, I just in so many ways thought it was so cool. So like, I'm, I'm now like a huge fan that I wasn't before after doing that reread and I'm happy to be doing another one and to be getting the chance to look at it even more closely this time. Awesome. I actually have a similar experience to Zach's um, with the movies. Uh, when they first came out, I was like maybe seven or eight. And I saw a scene uh, from the first movie. I think it was uh, Sam trying to follow Frodo into the water and nearly drowning. It was playing in a in a video store that I was in with my parents. And I saw that scene and it was like super scary. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I knew my, my dad was interested in the movies because he'd read the books as a kid. But we never really talked about it. And he never tried to get me to read the books. So I went on with my life and had a few more encounters with the movies where like people were watching it. Um, and I was doing something else. And it was always in, in French, like dubbed in French. So I didn't find it very interesting. Um, and one day my ex decided it was like, it was time I saw those movies. Um, so I was like maybe 17 at that point. And I watched the whole three movies, extended editions. And I was so into it. I maybe like two months later, I went to the library and 
got the books in English and started reading them. And yeah, that's pretty much how I came into um, the Lord of the Rings, but also fantasy as a whole, because apart from some YA stuff, I hadn't really read fantasy before. And um, yeah, I reread the third book uh, when the first crew was doing the reread on VOK, but I haven't reread the whole series yet. So this is my first proper reread. And I've read The Silmarillion a couple times. Uh, I was on the Silmarillion uh, reread uh, podcast, some of them. They were always at weird hours of the night. So <laughs> I have fuzzy memories of The Silmarillion. But um, <laughs> overall, it was a great experience. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like we, I mean, what's interesting to me is how, even though our experiences differ, um, we've all had our first encounter with the books when, or the movies, but the universe in general, um, when we were like seven or eight or something like that, um, which makes sense because indeed the movies happened at that time. I think what you're saying, Zach, about how these books just feel so different now as well is, yes, because of how they are written, but to me it's also because uh, of how huge the fandom is and how mythical their own existence is in a way. It's, uh, it's something that's very important in fantasy in general. And when I'm not reading them, I'm like, well, okay, they're good, but it's not actually that such a good writing. It's like a good story, but he, he doesn't know how to write characters and stuff like that. And when I'm in them, I realize how wrong I am on that. But I also think that the whole fandom and the movies and the fact that I'm rereading it is just also one reason why um, I'm finding more into it. Uh, so, yes. Um, so I guess we can start uh, properly this reread. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to talk about the prologue. Um, I haven't included it uh, in the show notes or anything, but it's actually part of the book. Uh, for my part, I think, I, so I mentioned with the actual way the story proper is told, it is in this third omniscient voice in the past tense where it feels like a a story being retold. And I also like how the prologue is told. It's, it, it actually feels like you're reading a historical account of something real. And I think that too helps to actually get you to kind of believe in what's happening and to genuinely feel like you're dropping into a world here because you're actually getting to read like a primary source from the world. I, I just like that a lot as a, as a little trick to get you engaged. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's it's done in a much more efficient way, I think, than something a bit superficial like the world of ice and fire or fire and blood, if you if you will. Um it's yeah, I agree. And it's also it's also just a recap of the hobbits and of yeah. what happened in the world beforehand. And I think I think it's not it's not done that, that often either. Um, Often it's done just in in the text where you get like uh, a few mentions of 
what happened before in the world like someone is gonna like tell a story to someone else and and you get um where the world is but in this you actually have like yeah that very realistic uh, prologue which is quite nice and we get the so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the movies like probably more than than the books themselves um I've rewatched them I don't know how many times and specifically I love the music um it it resonates with me a lot and so what I find amazing is that reading this book I can actually hear the music because I I know it so well and it's very it's well written so it goes very well with the different uh different uh um locations and different atmospheres so concerning habits uh, is actually the title of the first uh track i think and it it's it's on my mind when i'm reading yeah that song is fantastic and it it does such a great job um as i think that this chapter does of like just getting you into the mindset of what a hobbit mm-hmm. like what a hobbit's life is um and you just get like these these very specific descriptions about um i don't know just like of course they love food they love like filling in the corners is 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 described i think later um but yeah it's like it's just like that this like pastoral feeling this feeling of just like we're living our lives. We're living our best lives, you know, out here in the Shire. And uh, it's so good to get you engaged with that sense and to give you that feeling of happiness and safety before plunging into the more dangerous uh, places that we'll be coming. Yeah, I was I was actually kind of surprised by the prologue when I first read the books because I, I was coming to it from the movies. I'm expecting, like, immediate um, knowledge about the ring and Sauron and the elves and all this like epic stuff and the first part of the prologue is about hobbits and how <laughs> they live in a really nice place called the shire and they like to eat and they like uh pipe weed and there's a whole section about pipe weed pipe weed in the in the prologue and it, to me it, it it really embodies this whole feeling that we get throughout the books of sort of this nostalgia for simple living and simple life and just the happiness of hobbits in the shire apparently so i feel like it 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 really sets the tone but not in the way that you'd expect from an epic fantasy book yeah absolutely um so going into the first chapter uh which is a long expected party um so we get that wonderful and uh very cozy beginning with Bilbo and the preparations for the party and the party itself of course um which is a big thing as as it's uh, I'm I'm afraid to try and pronounce uh 111th birthday uh, <laughs> for Bilbo it's actually also um Frodo's uh He's 33, I think, um, at the time, and they have the same birthday. So they have the habit of um, celebrating it together. So this is a huge party. Basically, uh, everyone is invited in the Shire, and those who aren't uh, are coming anyway. Um, Bilbo actually plans to leave uh, right after the party, uh, and he chats with Gandalf um 
about that right before the party because uh, Gandalf actually knows about that. Uh, so the party itself is a lot of lot of food, uh, lots of hobbits, uh, lots of presents as well, um, fireworks and and everything. Uh, and then during his final speech, um, Bilbo weirdly disappears. Poof. Uh, and we find him again um, at Bag End, where Gandalf is waiting for him. They have a little confrontation about the ring and how Bilbo promised to leave it behind, um, which he um, eventually does. Uh, but it takes some, um, I'm going to say, uh, convincing uh, <laughs> from Gandalf. And um, so at the end of the chapter, we get. Frodo coming back to Bag End and and um, realizing that Bilbo is actually gone, like he was planning to. Um, Gandalf was waiting for him and explains him uh, that he got um, most of uh, Bilbo's inheritance, uh, including the ring, and he advises him to keep it secret and to not use it in any way that might be suspicious. And that's uh, the end of the first chapter. Something that I, I think is, again, like when I'm thinking about these books now that I think people don't really recognize necessarily, because I think a lot, these books kind of have the reputation of being like really slow moving and not very plot heavy necessarily. Like they're just like on this really long journey and not and there's not a lot of momentum to it. But this chapter is like, really technically effective as a first chapter in terms of introducing you to the world into the into the characters it doesn't specifically like let you get to know frodo very closely but he's not really the main character yet like that doesn't really happen until chapter two but it introduces you at the end of this chapter to the tension of the situation and it you feel it really strongly when they have this confrontation gandalf and bilbo about the ring and the ways that it clearly affects Bilbo as we've come to know him up to this point and just the struggle that he has to let go of the let go of the ring you immediately understand even though you don't really know what it is yet that this thing is important and of course you could have then divined from the title okay that there's something going on here <laughs> I'm curious but it it really works to again like get you really invested in everything that's going on here in this situation but also to make you curious about what that greater mystery is like it, it really does do a good job with that yeah, I think generally the book is very efficient and you get some parts where it's uh, indeed kind of slow moving, but uh, you also get some stuff that happens in a few paragraphs and there it's done and you don't uh, you don't have endless developments on them. Um, and, and I agree, it's, it's really striking in the, these first few chapters because they're very well um, uh, structured um so you actually get from one point to 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 the next uh during the chapter and you can yeah they work quite well yeah i think this is actually my favorite book i mean i'd be curious to know what your guys's favorite of the three within the lord of the rings is but like for me i just think this book does a, an amazing job at like every point at uh keeping it moving and keeping it interesting and introducing you to something new pretty consistently there's some parts that aren't great but like for me like i think this is like the most complete book to me of just like constantly being fun 
Okay. Um, so I don't really remember all the books well enough to to like know if I have a favorite one. Sure. Uh, but I do like the the atmosphere that we have uh, in this first book, where it's like sort of an adventure. You you kind of um, equated to Bilbo's adventure with the dragon. Like even if you haven't read The Hobbit, um, the characters talk about it a lot, and it's sort of like, ooh, hobbits going out into the world and um, being brave and having adventures. But you don't really get the whole scope of it yet. It's more like, okay, we're we're gonna see what's out there, and and uh, the the stakes don't really seem that high yet. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with, with, with a lot of what you guys have said. I don't know that I really can say I have a favorite book because to me it's just really this, I don't know, I do think of The Lord of the Rings not really as separate books, just yeah. as this whole narrative in my mind, I don't know. Um, but um, but I do really like this one for, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think, I mean, part of this is also that I think like just because of the age I was when I read it, I think this is sort of the most accessible book. Because then afterwards it goes into onto more like larger scale kind of things, and here it's got like hobbits hanging out in forests and a fox wandering past, like and 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 thinking about what the strange hobbits are doing there or whatever. Like it's it's sort of, I think it was sort of the most accessible to me at the time I first read it. So um, yeah, if I had to pick a favorite, I'd say it's probably this one. Yeah, I agree. And it's also like dark things happen in it, but right until the end, uh, it's it's more um, hopeful probably than than the other books. Um, I I like that even in this chapter, um, but mostly in in the next ones, we already get um, we already get a bit who Frodo is, but it's indeed quite a transition from The Hobbit to to The Lord of the Rings. Um, and we've mentioned already the narrator and the way it's uh, written with a, a third-person omniscience. But what I find interesting is that that third person uh, is not completely omniscient. Like, it, it is kind of linked um, either to Bilbo or to Frodo in the next chapter, and um, and and you get a bit of what they are in the narration, not exactly in the way it's written, but just on what it says. Um, and I think the most striking example of that is Sam, but we can um, we can expand on that in the next chapters. Anything more on on the first? I just want to say I aspire to be um, as as cool of an old person as Bilbo is. Oh, definitely. parties for my birthday and inviting everyone. Yeah, for but sure. It's definitely a life goal for me. Everything about it, this, this whole sequence is goals. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like the Hobbit um, tradition of actually giving away presents uh, for your birthday uh, and, and the fact that the way it transforms, uh, like they all have so many presents uh, to give on each birthday and they pass along presents that they've gotten from someone else. Um, and it's it's just, just silly uh, and nice at the same time. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Okay, well, uh, moving on to the next chapter then. And uh, I think we have Zach to uh, recap this one. All right, so chapter two. Um, I actually don't remember the name. It's uh, The Shadow of the Past, yes. So that is a accurate name for this. So with Bilbo gone, Frodo comes into his role as the master of Bag End, living a happy 17 years with friends like Merry and Pippin. As he approaches the age of 50, he is starting to feel a bit restless, wandering from home and hearing stories from travelers about strange things happening outside the Shire. One day, Gandalf returns unexpectedly and tells him the real story of Bilbo's ring, that it is in fact the One Ring, crafted by the great enemy, Sauron. To prove it, he throws the ring into the fire and reveals to Frodo the words inscribed upon, upon it. One ring to rule them all, one ring, one ring to find them wondering to bring them all and in the darkness bind them as if this shocking revelation weren't enough gandalf goes on to explain that the last owner before bilbo Gollum, was captured by the forces of mordor and interrogated revealing to the enemy the words baggins and shire frodo realizes that he has no choice but to leave the shire and plots with gandalf what exactly he should do but they are overheard by his gardener samwise gamgee Gandalf catches him and charges him to go with Frodo on this perilous journey as his punishment. So yeah, th this, you know, I think Alex was talking before about how it's kind of surprising, especially after having seen the movies first, that when we're introduced to the story, we don't really know anything about the ring or the history there. And we get all that here. Like this is the chapter where basically everything about the ring is explained. Um, not, not everything, but most of it. So we get the whole history essentially of where it came from. We learned that it was forged by Sauron. We learned that it came in the hands of uh, Isildur after he defeated Sauron and that he kept it instead of destroying it. And he was eventually killed. It fell into the river and it was eventually as Gandalf has pieced together, picked up by Gollum, who was um, some kind of hobbit at that period of time. And then he went off into the cave where eventually Bilbo finds him in The Hobbit, and that's how it got here. So we get that whole story of where it came from and the sort of greater threat to the world that is Sauron and that association with the ring and the importance of it and the fact that there are very dangerous people now in the world looking for it. Um, so we kind of get this context of the whole story here. It just gives us a ton of information, essentially. I think it's just a, it's a, a telling of this history that Gandalf has uncovered and shares with Frodo, which kind of situates us for everything that's to come. Yeah, what really baffles me in this chapter is that Gandalf comes back 17 years later with all of this information about the ring, how it's super dangerous, and there's really dangerous people looking for it. And then Frodo's like, okay, so can I wait like six months before I move? <laughs> There's a lot of that in these books where they're like, can you guys get a move on here? Uh, serious thing happening. And like, they stay here for six months and they stay in Rivendell way too long. <laughs> it's a lot of... Yeah. I mean, I, I understand where Frodo's coming from. Like, it's not easy to uproot your whole life and go on a quest. Of course, but... yeah. And... You have to plan for these things, but they, they really don't seem to be that anxious about the ring, I guess. I was just going to say, like, the fact, too, that um, 17 years pass, suddenly you're like, what? <laughs> it's so surprising, when, especially when you're like, what happened? Why? <laughs> how, how is he 50 now? Like, what What was the, yeah. what are, what the things that happened in that intervening time? They're no, they're no longer young, young habits. Like, they're 50. Uh... At least Frodo is. Um, 
which is which is kind of weird when you have that image from the the movies where they all look like teenager basically um <laughs> and it, it feels weird to know that they're that old and yeah he comes back after 17 years gandalf here is both uh, really serious like he explains what what the ring is and and how dangerous it is but it's also it's weird how slowly he got to that conclusion and like he left 17 years ago uh or the last time there there were like nine years um before he came back uh to explain all that and this is weird this is um but I, I think it's also a sign and same thing with the idea that Frodo takes like six months to plan for his uh uh for for him leaving the Shire. It's things are just slower in a world where you travel on horse and even like news travels on foot or on horse, uh, I guess. So it's uh, it's also a part of this world to just take a little bit more time. But right now it's a it's too yeah. not yeah yeah <laughs> too much time. Yeah, in Gandalf's case, he just has many he has many different concerns. It feels like this is just one of the things that came across his path and that he was pursuing, and he eventually realized how important it was, but. He just he's like a busy man, you know. So he's got a lot going on that that probably distracted him over that period. Yeah, I think it's also the fact that the ring was was kind of lost even from memory for a lot of these characters. Like obviously not for Gandalf, but I don't think he expected it to uh, resurface, uh, or just not in this way. And he wasn't actually looking for where it is. So, and many of the characters have forgotten about it. And it's, to me, it's also weird how the fact that uh, Sauron is coming back uh, is not like this huge news that's um, like really specific. It's it's more like rumors of stuff and uh, the enemy is growing again, but it doesn't feel like they all react to it uh, in the appropriate way, like you would expect everyone, the elves, the the men, the the dwarves, everyone to just be like, "Oh no, Sauron is back! We got to do something." But it's not exactly what, how it happens, and that's that's a bit weird as well. To be fair, I mean, I don't think we want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but like in a way, that reminds me a bit of certain real life threats. <laughs> Yeah, been on the horizon in some form or another for quite a while, and you're always like, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's probably bad. I hope this doesn't start affecting us. It might, you know, but I mean, it's pretty far away, yeah. so it's probably nothing to worry about too much for now, I guess. But we should definitely do something about it at some point, <laughs> and then suddenly it's here and everything's hell. So maybe it's just. I don't know. Maybe this is more relatable than I would have previously. Oh, that I think it's relatable for me personally. It's like, uh, I'll deal with it later. <laughs> well, it's actually quite realistic, but when you go into the story knowing all that you know, it feels like it's one of these books uh, that have a clear enemy and a clear wrong and a clear uh, like there's the the yeah, there's the good and and the evil and and you, the good fights the evil, and that's that's basically it in a superficial way. 
So you kind of expect them to react uh, more strongly, but at the same time, I agree, it's, it's probably more realistic uh, the way it happens. Yeah, they all have their own problems, yeah. internal issues. And <laughs> hobbits need to have a lot of food, you know. And yeah, it's they're, complicated. They're really preoccupied with how many meals a day they can have. And <laughs> this this sort of thing takes up a lot of time. Yeah, that's really yeah. one uh, one part of this chapter that I liked is uh, where they are at the um, at the tavern or whatever it's called uh i think it's it's in the chapter yes it's in the beginning i think and um on sam uh he has different conversations and he's participating uh and talking about legend legends and dragons and stories and who actually um uh invents the stories and I think it's a first first development of uh, how insightful and thoughtful uh, Sam actually is, which is quite interesting because the other ones, uh, like Frodo, won't realize that quite so soon uh, in the in in the book, uh, and even the the way it's it's told is not uh, uh, is not obvious but he clearly has a lot of his on his mind and that's the first inkling to me um of the conspiracy uh, with Pippin and Mary uh, to um to know what Frodo is about yeah and i think that's a good uh just the the, the comment on Sam i think is a good uh transition into the next chapter where he kind of gets his wish here of getting to see some elves so yeah. Uh, in chapter three, three is company, um, with Frodo slow, as we've talked about, <laughs> to prepare for his journey. Gandalf urges him to make his preparations and to make way for Rivendell when the time comes. Uh, Frodo makes plans to sell Bag End to the Sackville Bagginses and ostensibly move to Buckland. Gandalf leaves suddenly and does not return when Frodo's 50th birthday comes. Frodo goes on with his plan anyway and sets off with Sam, Pippin, and Frodo. Well, Frodo sets off with Frodo. That doesn't make sense. Sam and Pippin for Buckland. <laughs> on the road, they find themselves followed by a strange traveler and decide it best to hide on the road. This mysterious black rider on a large black horse comes forth and Frodo feels the urge to put on the ring, but he resists it. The rider moves on and the hobbits proceed with more caution at night, the rider returns again, but just in that moment, a company of elves comes by and the rider retreats. The leader of the elves, Gildor, recognizes Frodo and, much to the hobbit's surprise, invites them to their traveling party. The hobbits enjoy the elves' food and their songs, Sam most of all, and Frodo talks with Gildor late in the night of his mission, the identity of the Black Riders, and the perils to come. So yeah, this, you know, talking kind of about the economy of the story that you were mentioning, Marie... I think this is a great moment of actually getting this this kind of glimpse at the outside world that we're about to see a lot more of. Um, you know, up to this point, we feel very cloistered like the hobbits. We feel like the Shire is all we know as the reader. Um, and in this moment, we get this huge, this huge transition where we get to meet elves, you know, like one of the mythic figures, it feels like in this world. Um, and we get to see them as being something so very different from the hobbits. 
and we feel the sort of awe that that Sam himself experiences as someone who has heard stories of elves and who desperately wants to meet them. Uh, and we also get the sense too that Frodo is different from the other hobbits in so much as he has this information that's been imparted to him from Bilbo of elven speech, of elven um, history. So when he meets them, he is treated almost as one of them. And they, of course, they describe him as a elf friend here, which is a very significant thing to be to be uh, within you know any kind of situation with elves so we we get to know that frodo is a little bit different he's a little bit special but we also get to to see more of the world here and to see this very different uh this very different reality for different people i think the elves uh it's actually also suggested i think that frodo met them before maybe not exactly them and but uh he like his friends suspected that he went to meet the elves when he would go on his long walks uh, alone in the Shire. Uh, and I think it's it's kind of uh, implicit that, that he, he might have done so. Um, and uh, so one thing I've, I've noticed in the chapter that just horrified me is the way Sam is, is described. Um, he's described as sleeping... Um, by his master's foot like a dog like it actually says like a dog um in the text and i found that just yikes yikes yeah so awful and that that's yeah. where i'm i'm um i'm thinking like i i don't think that's how frodo views him really but it it yeah, I, I was very um, weirded out by just this uh, turn of phrase because it's really, really ugh, awful uh, to compare him to a dog like that. Um, and I don't know if it's... it. I don't know what it reflects um, that he would write something like that. Well, I think it, it really speaks to the class divide among hobbits. Like, there's... The noble hobbits like Frodo and Pippin and Merry, who have like, all these old families who have land and stuff. And then there's Sam, who's uh, a servant and a gardener, and he's kind of the odd one out. And it's, I think these sorts of these passages really bring out the the fact that he wasn't predestined to come on this journey, and he kind of ended up here um, on accident because he was um, caught by Gandalf. And as the story goes on, like you said, we find out that he's actually a lot more um, uh, aware of all of these things and has a lot more uh, to offer to the party than just uh, coming along and carrying packs. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I have to correct myself. It it does not say like a dog in this specific place. Uh, it does say curled up uh, at Frodo's feet or something like that. But I I know for a fact because I've really noticed it when I read it and I uh, I didn't uh, write it down. But I think maybe in chapter two or earlier in this chapter, uh, he is indeed compared to a dog in the way he... Um, acts around his master and i think you're right uh, alex it's it's very clear in this uh, few first few chapters how sam 
is not the same as Frodo, but it's he's not the same as Pippin or Merry either. Like he he is kind of a friend, but is uh, a servant before he is a friend, and it's yeah, it's a bit uh, makes me a bit uncomfortable, but. Uh, thankfully, we will see soon how invaluable he is to to the whole uh, company. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's tricky, of course. And there's a we can pay attention to like a different historical context that this was written in than the one that we live in. So that is obviously an element. And I think a lot of the class stuff that that you were mentioning, Alex, is a part of that. But it, I do think it's notable, of course, the fact that Sam is most people's favorite character and i think there's a reason for that and i don't think that would be the case if tolkien like thought that all he was was like a servant or a lapdog or something like that like clearly he's more than that and clearly tolkien thinks he's more of that so i I don't know it's 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 complicated for sure yeah and that's also why i think that this narrator is not um He's not uh, completely uh, neutral. Like uh, he also follows the the developments of the characters and how they think differently about the world and about the other characters in the story uh, as as they go on, um, which I think is like a subtle. It's subtle, but it's uh, it it uh, shows how uh, carefully written uh, the book uh, is. Yeah, you can tell too that um I mean I think what I really like about the narrator is the the third omniscient that we've talked about but the narrator is past tense so the narrator knows everything that's happened like the narrator knows the entire story uh and has insights on these characters um and what they went through and what they will become so you kind of get these hints um throughout in this sense that they are the sense of the whole story which I think I think kind of gives you a different idea of who they are like it, it the way that you look at them is not quite the same as if you were like in their shoes living through this stuff in the moment i was um i was curious um i think i believe on the original one of these that VOK did there was a certain amount of elf dislike <laughs> by some figures on that podcast um so i'm wondering like what are you guys yeah, was it mainly shellfish or what happened it wasn't I, think it was, I think the it was elf. Hater. Yes. So I was curious, like, what do you guys think of elves as as a uh, as a group? I think they're they're really not as bad in the Lord of the Rings as they are in the Silmarillion. Like, in the Lord of the Rings, they're sort of these cool figures that we kind of see from afar, and then we meet them in Rivendell, and they're sort of otherworldly, and we don't really get involved in in any of their stories. But in the Silmarillion, they're really just a bunch of assholes. Not all of them, but right. yeah, they're worse there. But like in the Silmarillion, to be fair, I feel like they're basically—I mean, there are humans as well—but like basically, I think of the the elves in the Silmarillion as acting as humans, basically. Right, like you yeah. get, yeah. So I don't really—I don't feel—I feel like if you if you if you're basing your judgment of elves on the Silmarillion, then I feel like that's a bit. Um, I don't know. I don't feel like you're being you're measuring fairly if that's the case because they do really messed up things. But then to me, it reads a lot like, um, like at the time when I was first reading the Lord of the Rings, I was reading a lot of like German and Greek and whatever heroic epics and that and and sagas and folklore and stuff. 
and to me it just reads a lot like that and it, and like a lot of people just do pretty shitty yeah. things humans in real history have done pretty awful things and the elves in the Silmarillion are just like that um in my view so i don't really hate them on that basis individual ones yeah sure but <laughs> but not, not like as a race as a whole and then humans in the lord of the rings also mess things up as well so whatever i think elves are fine i think they're cool they do some cool stuff as well so yeah no i think they're fine too they just um, seem a lot more dignified in, in the Lord of the Rings <laughs> when we see them through the Hobbit's eyes than than they do in other situations. Yeah, but that's part of it, right? You expect so much of them because yeah. the Hobbits just have such awe for them. Uh, so you like uh, you expect that they will be awesome. Uh, but actually, even in this chapter, um, I'm not saying that that they are. Uh, terrible but just they help but without without really openly like Gildor doesn't want to tell anything that um, everything that he knows and he has his reasons and that's fine but uh, it feels a bit like he's keeping things to himself that could help um, and he's just so different like you don't really know how to communicate with them yeah yeah i just want to say quickly i love i love what you said there tanya about comparing it to kind of mythic characters because i think when you when when the characters are like the main features of these legends that's when you see them doing the awful shit because like there's always characters in those kinds of stories doing terrible things so it's just kind of inevitable that if these elves are the main figures of those stories that they will be doing awful stuff um but yeah like in this case i think like you're saying marie like they do feel that that alien quality and they also just feel like they do hold themselves to a different level of plane like you even have moments here where they're like oh look at these hobbits they're so silly <laughs> you know like look at these little things that only live like a hundred years they're not that important you get that sense but they also don't feel like they don't feel malicious in any particular way. And I think Gildor, while he does withhold information, he has the best interests of Frodo in mind. And you feel that? Yeah, and he helps. I mean, he he sends yeah. words to Aragorn, like we will learn later, and to Tom Bombadil as well, I think. Um, so he, he does help in his way. Um, but it's a bit... Um, it's a bit frustrating to see them act with such, in a way, they, they feel, okay, what frustrates me is that they are supposed to be the serious ones, and yet they're not taking really, uh, what what is happening to Hobbits uh, seriously, or, or they are, but in a kind of um, more uh, detached way. And... Um, and in in the end, it's it's the hobbits uh, fleeing from from the the black riders, and that's what's scary, uh, and they feel completely detached from that. Yeah, well, kind of like what we were saying earlier with regards to Sauron and everyone not dropping everything to fight him immediately. Like everyone has their own issues that they're dealing with, and the elves they're traveling they they can lend a hand and give word to 
to the people they cross, but they're not going to go out of their way to stay there and help the hobbits uh, get safely to where they're going. Like they have other priorities. Yeah, which in a way is not what you would expect of a fantasy novel, even though it's probably more realistic. Um, yeah, this is where you expect the help to come and to save the day, essentially. Yeah, I, I'm curious, and I, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, Tanya, but like the way I'm thinking of it is that the el most of the elves, there's a few exceptions, but most of the elves at this point in the history of Middle-earth have moved on from Middle-earth. They're not even like thinking about Middle-earth as a concern at this point. They're already past that. Like None of the matters and the cares that are happening here are of interest to them for the most part. It, is that generally right? That, that that's same. the impression i get as well yeah like like sort of like for us as readers of the lord of the rings all of this like everything that's happening here seems hugely important and seems to be sort of this central world defining conflict but i think in a way it really like on the scale of the whole world i think it really isn't it's just about middle earth as this one part of the world and it's not that relevant what happens there to a lot of other people who are not in middle earth which is a lot of the elves that's kind of the sense I get that if depending on what scale you look at it, maybe it's just not that important. Yeah, and the main theme of the Lord of the Rings as well is that it's the 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 era is sort of shifting from the time of the elves to the time of men, and the elves are leaving Middle Middle Earth, and so they're not as concerned with the with the future of of Middle Earth uh, and the the main players in in this story have to be the men because that's the world that they're going to inherit after all this is over. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, basically, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we are good uh, to go on. Um, and, well, Alex, same. If you want to introduce both chapter at the same time you can or if you want if you think it's more uh interesting to discuss chapter four first and then five we can do that as well just whichever way you prefer um okay i'm gonna try to recap both chapters because they're they're both pretty short okay. and i think the the action can be summarized um so uh when frodo and his friends wake up the elves are gone um they uh, have a discussion over breakfast where Pippin starts to ask all these questions about the journey, but Frodo's not in the mood for that yet. And so Pippin leaves, leaves them alone and Frodo talks to Sam about the dangers of the journey. And he says a, a line that I underlined because it, it seemed pretty um, insightful for the, the time. He says, most likely neither of us will come back. So that's that shit's getting serious. Um, they head out and Frodo decides to uh, try to take a shortcut towards the Brandywine Ferry. Um, the shortcut isn't as easy as they expected and they uh, catch sight of the Black Riders a couple times and at one point they hear uh, a chilling inhuman shriek that um, makes them even more anxious to get going um, and find their way. So as they are leaving the woods and correcting their course, uh, they come across Farmer Maggot's land. Um, and this news um, seems to affect Frodo particularly 
because as a young boy, he had been caught trespassing on Farmer Maggot's land and has been living in fear of the farmer and his dogs ever since. Um, but Pippin reassures him that Farmer Maggot is a reasonable man and a friend of Mary's, so everything's going to be okay. And they go on um, on the lane and come across the farmer's dogs and the farmer himself soon enough. Uh, they are warmly greeted and invited to share a beer inside. Um, the farmer sh seems shocked to hear the name of Baggins uh, because he has had a strange visitor asking for that name just that very day. Um, so after some talking, Farmer Maggot offers the Hobbit dinner and a ride to the ferry. And uh, as they reach the ferry, they hear the ominous sound of a horse coming near, and uh, Frodo hides in the wagon in, in preparation, but it turns out to be Mary, who had been waiting for them all day at the ferry, and was starting to get worried that they wouldn't show up. So they say goodbye to Farmer Maggot, and Frodo is relieved uh, to see that uh, water has... Uh, Water has flown under the bridge, and the farmer has forgiven him for his past mischief as they part with a gift of mushrooms from Mrs. Maggot. So in Chapter 5, A Conspiracy Unmasked, um, the hobbits cross the ferry and head over to Crick Hollow in Buckland, which is the house that Frodo has bought. Um, they are treated to a bath and supper upon arriving, um, and it is on this occasion we get to hear a bath song from Sam and Pippin. Um, in, in this chapter, uh, Frodo decides that he must finally tell Merry and Pippin that he is in fact leaving the Shire. And um, he's highly surprised when Mary reveals that they have known this for quite some time. Um, and they not only know about Frodo's plans to leave, but also about the ring and the enemy and all that stuff uh, with, because of Sam's eavesdropping in Hobbiton. So uh, Frodo doesn't want to subject his friends to, danger, to all this danger, but Mary and Pippin insist on coming along. Um, so they decide to set out uh, away from the road once again and cut through the old forest that borders Buckland. Um, and it is decided that Fatty Bulger will stay behind at Crick Hollow to keep up the pretense that Frodo is living there. Uh, and uh, the chapter ends with Frodo dreaming about a dark forest uh, and the sounds of the great sea. Thanks, Alex. Um... So, you got to love Farmer Maggot, right? Yeah, he's so sweet. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. I distinctly remember when I first read this as a kid, being much like Frodo and being terrified of Farmer Maggot. And like when he, like before he shows up and helps out, of course, like when you, when he's like, when you hear the dogs and you're like, what's going to happen? Oh God, it, like he felt like a villain in the story in a much smaller scale sense, which is cool because like at, that's how um, 
the hobbits felt at the time, right? You know, like they're like, this is the greatest fear that we have is Farmer Maggot and him knowing that we're trying to steal his mushrooms and all that. Um, yeah, especially Frodo, who's who is pretty reasonable with all the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to Farmer Maggot, he's completely terrified. This is such a typical hobbit uh, issue. <laughs> Um, so we learned too that, uh, Sam wasn't actually, uh, sleeping, uh, the previous night and that he had his own talk with the elves, which is very cool. Um, and that again, he knows, uh, like he's not as helpless, uh, as he seems. Um, and I, I also thought that this was just such great writing because the Black Riders are just so scary and you really feel like they're being um, they they are being hunted and you you really feel it and uh, it it works very very well Uh, and it will go on in in the next chapters at least once they live uh, Tom Bombadil and so from the elves to now uh, you also realize that Gandalf should really have been there by now, and that it's very, um, very weird that he hasn't shown up as he was supposed to. And everyone is more and more uh, worried about that, including the reader. Yeah, it's starting to feel like um, things aren't really happening as planned. Like they're they're being followed by these big scary people and Gandalf is still not there and um I I I quite like the the encounter with Mary where um you feel like they're they're about to meet the Black Rider and the tension is so high and it turns out it's their friend but their friend is also worried because he's been waiting for them uh, at the ferry and they were they were really late showing up because of all the the detours they took or well not a detour but they kind of got lost (laughs) in that short yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. um so i i loved uh chapter five because it's uh it's got like really nice friendship moments where you get uh mary being like well no you obviously cannot trust us to keep I mean you can trust us to keep your secret but you cannot trust us to just leave you to to go on your own because we are your friends which I thought was like such a great definition of friendship like obviously we are gonna do what we can to know about your secret uh, but once we know about it we are keeping it as safe as if it was ours um which was really nice This is another interesting narration moment where essentially the narrator tells us that um, Fredegar is going to die or that something awful will happen to him. Um, like there's a, there's a remark that him choosing to stay behind will end badly for him, which again, like is not a way that stories are typically told now where like you just kind of reveal that information like randomly. Normally you'd want to preserve like that as a reveal later. Uh, it's not what happens though. Right. I, Something bad happens to him, right? Well, okay, I'm 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 ahead, but um, I think he actually, at least, is not 
killed by, by the Black Riders in this. I don't know what happens to him in the Shire la later uh, in the story, but um, but we get actually news of him a couple of chapters later uh, when the Black Riders uh, arrive uh, at Creek Hollow and he he flees and, and he's safe. But yes, you get this uh, sense that his role staying there will not be safer than uh, uh, for those who are going away. Yeah, I think it, like he gets messed up by the, the little scouring of the Shire business. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't it yeah. well <laughs> um, uh, So I'm, uh, you're, you're probably the one who knows best about this. Um, Tanya, I have heard like a story about how Tolkien has this dream of like a wave of water that recurs and that it's a dream that's actually been passed down throughout his family history. And that's why he gave Frodo this dream here. Is that right? Or is that crazy? If you know. I don't actually, I also feel like I've vaguely come across this, but I'm not, like, I, I know there's like an Atlantis theme. Yeah, I've heard something uh, like that, but it's kind yeah, of- Yeah, so in one of the letters, apparently it says, this legend or myth or dim memory of some ancient history has always troubled me. In sleep, I had the dreadful dream of the ineluctable, it's not a word I know, of the ineluctable wave either coming out of the quiet sea or coming in towering over the green islands. It still occurs occasionally, though now exercised by writing about it. It always ends by surrender and I awake gasping out of deep water. I used to draw it or write bad poems about it. Um, it was that, and, and then, so that's the end of the quote. And then it says, um, it was this dream that inspired the story of the downfall of Numenor. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, the professor transfers his dream to Faramir, who dreams of the downfall of Numenor. Ah, yes. Tolkien yeah. may have passed down from his parents. Um, as a son, Michael had similar dreams, while Tolkien had never mentioned it to him. Yeah. Yes, I, that's it. Yeah. In, about in like one website that I found um, to to look uh, for uh, chapter recaps and so on, um, they mentioned that uh, Frodo has a dream, uh, the first of several visionary dreams, uh, as we will see uh, soon. And in this one, he hears and smells the sea and sees a tall white tower standing alone on a high ridge. Um, from which if he could climb it, he could look out over the sea. Um, on the website says that it, this is one of the towers of Emin Barad built by um, Gilgalad, Gilgalad, I don't know, whatever, for Elendil, uh, west of, um, yeah, west of, uh, of the, the Grey Havens, actually. Or, uh, no, a, a mm -hmm. bit east of the Grey Havens, but like uh, in the same direction. Anyway, uh, I don't know where that analysis comes from and if it's accurate, but what they suggest is that since um, since Frodo has become a ring bearer, he is having dreams related to the history of the One Ring, which would kind of make sense. And yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Because I read that as a, a dream that was foreshadowing his future and riding on the on the ship. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. At Grey Havens. That's, that's, that's what I would think yeah, as well. Same. 
That's sort of how I'd read it, but then there's so many towers in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's all kinds of towers. Yeah. yeah, but I love that stuff. I love dreams and prophecies and things like that. So it's cool yeah, that we got, get some of that earlier. Yeah, we get we get some uh, some dreams as well, like in the in the Tumblr middle chapter, which will be on the next reread. Um, which I I didn't think I'd find interesting, but then I did. So <laughs> yay. <laughs> um okay anything more on these two chapters uh they're pretty straightforward yeah. right? <laughs> they are yeah. uh, contrary to the old forest which is like i was afraid of these two chapters i gotta say two or three chapters like the old forest the when when they're at um the house uh, of tom bombadil and when they are uh, in the Barrow Downs, uh, I was like, "This is the point where if <laughs> if I'm if I'm bored, it's gonna be there." Um, but it was actually better this time. So they leave uh, earlier dawn. Uh, Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. Um, so Mary is actually the one who knows where they're going, as he has been in the old forest before. Um, as soon as they enter, they feel like they are being observed and that um, the forest is not very friendly. Um, Mary quickly notices that the trees seems to seem to have shifted since last he was there. Um, and uh, they end up being pushed in a way they didn't want to go, uh, but they have no choice because that's the only path. Um, and takes them to uh, the Withywindle River and so that's the very core of the forest and it's where all the rumors come from that it's dangerous and that you're going to get lost in, in it so um, and as it happens they soon uh, feel very tired and they fall asleep um, Sam is actually the one who resists the longest and he stays awake um, long enough to save Frodo, who has fallen in the water. Uh, and when they turn around uh, to find Merry and Pippin, uh, they realize that they are trap, uh, trapped in the great uh, willow's uh, trunk. And so they yell for help, and Tom Bombadil arrives singing, and he sings a song to Old Man Willow, uh, which frees um, Merry and Pippin, and they end up following him to his house, where they can hear singing. Uh, yeah. So the very scary old forest. So there's a lot of things in this uh, in this chapter. Um, so we get uh, some development of Merry's character that you could also see from from uh, chapter five. Um, in that he is kind of the, in a way, the most uh, serious one, uh, and he's knowledgeable. He he's kind of sure of himself. Like he's really confident, uh, and they are all quite scared of the forest, but they follow him. Um, so he takes the lead for a while. Um, but like as as I mentioned, I find it quite interesting that it's actually Sam who has the uh, mental strength to resist uh, Old Man Willow's song uh, the longest. 
Um, and um, there's also some foreshadowing of uh, the Barrow Downs chapter uh, as they they see uh, that region in the east and they're like, we don't want to go there. Um, and generally, like, the east is kind of a scary place, uh, even though that's uh, where they are going. Um, and one last thing is that I think it's um, it's kind of surprising uh, to me that um, the forest is so dangerous and kind of evil, uh, whereas you, you you get kind of uh, used to the idea that nature is good and like men and the industry uh, is bad in this world in a very um, like very uh, I oversimplify of course but that's interesting to me that um, in in this instance the the forest is actually not such a nice place and uh, and you get quite um, carry things happening. And actually, with that tumble medal, uh, it would have ended there. Yeah, I feel like the the old forest um, at this point is uh, sort of representing all that's outside of the Shire as being scary and and un unpredictable. And they, well, they they've already had. Um, a not great of an experience with a shortcut before and this time they're they're trying to go through this forest that has a reputation but they still go into it thinking oh it's going to be fine mary's been here before but you know as a reader that that's not going to happen and they're going to get carried into the forest uh, much deeper than they were expecting and it, it sort of feels like they're with each um with each step in their journey they're getting further away from what they know and uh further into uh dangerous spots and it's only going to get worse from here well uh, apart from the the part of Tom Bombadil's house that's pretty chill <laughs> it's pretty chill yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is an interesting chapter because i believe I believe this is the chapter where Tolkien kind of gets the reputation for like, he only writes about trees and nature all the time and it's boring. You know, like I think this is the chapter people point to a lot with that. And it might be a chapter where people kind of bounce off the books. But for me, actually, like the opening of this chapter, I weirdly find super evocative. Like when they're leaving in the morning, like and you, you have just like that morning chill air and like the dew on the trees and like just like the cutting through the, the fields to get to the forest. Like I just find that so evocative of like travel and going on a journey. I don't know, like it just it hits me really hard when I read it. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think the forest being so powerful is actually an important theme as well for Tolkien and and the idea that don't underestimate uh, trees, which might sound a bit silly, but we see later in the, in the story that they actually have a role to play uh, when they get in Fangorn. Um, and it's kind of setting up uh, the stage for that part of the story. These trees do not mess around. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Yeah, it does set that up really well. And yeah, I'm not, I'm really not the biggest fan of like Tom Bombadil and that whole part. Like it's fine, but yeah. I don't really like it. But blasphemy. It's blasphemy. All right, we, we'll get to that. Yeah, <laughs> this is kind of baked into that, so it's like eh, it's whatever. But yeah, I think uh, like I love. And we'll get to this too. Like I love like going to like the ruins of Arnor and like the the Barrow Downs and all that. Like for me again, like the the ruins of what of the great things that used to be are my favorite things about the setting. So there's that balancing it too. I don't really have a good transition from what <laughs> Zach just said, but um, to go back to what you're saying, Mar- Mary about Mary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we see in this chapter that like he. He's kind of no nonsense about like fairy tales and stuff, but he does take the forest seriously and he knows there's something going on here and he tries to warn the other hobbits not to make too much noise and not to anger the trees. And it I don't know, it it it's nice to me to see to see that side uh to Mary because in the in the movies the the Hobbits, especially Merry and Pippin, are sort of played for comic relief for a lot of their scenes, and we don't really get to to see this side of their characters where they can be serious and, and earnest. Yeah, and and like different, uh, and like they are not just the two Hobbits that uh, accompany Frodo and Sam. And I think for that, yeah, like, they yeah they really have their personalities. yeah exactly, They're and you see it in the movies, other, yeah. but it it comes kind of later and um i think that's also why it was nice to have this this few chapters where it was just uh frodo sam and pippin um because it's just a bit different from uh what we know in the movie and uh it it allows you to see pippin in a different light even though it's it it's quite a it's not necessarily very uh, flattering as he is not taking uh, the back riders uh, seriously enough, but uh, you, you get to see him. Yeah, he's yeah. more preoccupied with getting a pint of beer at the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and we get that. But <laughs> Sorry, I was just saying who isn't just preoccupied with getting a pint of beer yeah. at the end of the day. I have a lot of sympathy for him. Yeah. So relatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no i i really like the hobbits in the books um like all of them i feel they they feel really distinct and mary here really stands out as having like this very different perspective from everyone else yeah and what i was saying at the beginning in in the way that um i think there's a lot of things uh building uh for me um into the characters and i think it's like the movies and the books and what I love and think about them, um, all of that just uh, is thrown into a big mix, which uh, makes it more and more interesting to read the books because they are becoming more than the words on the page. I find that quite powerful because I really used to think uh, that Tolkien was a great uh, storyteller but that his characters were not that developed. And I mean, I still think that. I still think it's true for some of them. Um, but there are still things there that you can uh, use to to feel more about the characters than... Uh, like, it's more subtle. Um, 
another novel would just um, push all of that and all of those feelings uh, into you. Like this is what you're supposed to feel about this character, and here it's it's much more uh, what you what you build in yourself, which I find uh, yeah really quite quite interesting. Yeah, and we'll talk about this more as we meet more characters, but. Like, for me, the hobbits themselves feel like normal characters to me for the most part. And, of course, the narration affects how we view them. But the men, uh, just those types of characters and the elves, they feel more like mythic characters to me. They feel like characters out of a mythic story. Like, they, they behave in those ways to me. And, like, once I, like, recognize that and that's kind of how, how he's doing it, like, it's fine. But they don't feel like the kind of characters that you would normally see in a story. But they feel like that, which I like. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, very true. I agree. Yeah, sort of on that note, like in general, I feel like one one reason maybe why why at first glance maybe the characters in Tolkien sometimes seem less, I don't know, developed than in, I don't know, Song of Ice and Fire, for example, is that I think there's sort of very different approaches to the writing and the constructing of the world of the narr um, and the narrative. Because I feel like Martin, for example, has characters and um a narrative based around those characters and then sort of the world sort of emerges around these characters as a sort of necessary tool to be able to tell the story um whereas to me tolkien feels very much like sort of the reverse approach like there's a world and there's a narrative happening within that world and the characters sort of emerge out of that um as as a tool to tell the story and in a way uh I guess what you were saying about the 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 men and the elves being sort of more mythical creatures in that sense, I I think to me that feels like they are sort of more part of the world, whereas the hobbits are sort of more of a reflection of the of the reader who's being thrown into this mythical world and exploring the world and the narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. All that is perfect. And yeah, I think like it's they're like characters from like a play to me. These other they're like they're like from Shakespeare from like a Greek tragedy. Like that's how they behave to me. And I think that kind of character is fine too. But it's a very different way of understanding how a person would act and feel and emote in all these ways. And I think like you say, like it's because they're they're kind of like sort of like they're kind of like roles in the story that's playing out in this grand mythic narrative. Yeah, that's uh. That's very accurate and a very good way of saying that. I agree. Okay, well, I don't think I personally have much more to say. Um, yeah, any last thought on these six first, first six chapters? I was quite excited about this recording, um, but now I'm so much more excited about the next one as well. I've really been enjoying this. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've actually like yeah. kept on reading. Uh, although I, I, I thought I would stop and just like maybe read a bit of The Witcher or something else that I might need for another podcast soon. But I was like, no, I'm excited actually. Let's keep let's keep reading. Um, so I'm almost done with the <laughs> yeah. The Witcher shade during there. It's great. Um. I feel mostly the same way, to be honest. These feel very different. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I actually love 
The Witcher as well. I, uh, I'm really into it as well, but uh, I thought I would be, uh, it would be easier to just switch between the books and I find myself just plowing on <laughs> once I'm, uh, once I'm in one. So that's good. I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah i'm excited to read the next chapters because i i forced myself to take a break after finishing the uh-huh. next chapter here so that i wouldn't be too far yeah. ahead when we record it you are stronger than me um we will discuss the time for the next recording as well um uh, i guess soon um and uh yeah that's exciting a new reread, uh, not as many episodes as the Song of Ice and Fire reread, thankfully. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. I think even if we start going chapter by no, chapter, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be episodes. wouldn't be as much. <laughs> um, can I just quickly plug something? Yes, absolutely. Um, so late, so like this year, there's been quite a lot of conversation within the Tolkien fandom around how like around diversity in both the actual works and uh, also in the fandom because there's been sort of some uh, um, incidents around uh, fans of color just not being particularly welcome in in the fandom which has traditionally been quite uh, eurocentric mm-hmm. um, which i suppose makes sense from some like from some perspective because that's sort of where the books are from but sort of as the world is i don't know opening up and more and more people are uh reading everything and connecting with each other um it's become more and more of an issue that the fandom isn't that inclusive um and uh there is this organization called alliance of arda which has been founded very very recently um and they are just um basically making an effort to discuss um, intersectional importance like race, sexuality, gender identity and disability through Tolkien and his works and I would encourage everyone to get involved with them and the best way to do that is probably to just look them up on Facebook, Alliance of Arda and um, yeah, I feel like those are very important conversations uh, to have and Tolkien's work has been around for such a long time and people can still find new angles to look at it which I think is fantastic but this is definitely an angle that hasn't been looked at as much as maybe it should have. Um, so I'm quite excited for the new conversations that have been arising out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd like to talk that to everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. I agree. That's uh, both interesting and, and necessary. Um, so great. I will try to like put a link uh, in the episode description. Um, Amazing. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, well, I guess that closes this podcast officially. Um, had like, do we have any upcoming podcasts we want to uh, give a shout out to or anything? Uh, for me, we'll most likely be continuing Harry Potter uh, soon. Um, so continuing that reread, which is also taking forever. Um, uh, and I would also like to do at the end of the year as I tend to do a look at the best games, the best video games that came out um, over the course of this year. So we'll probably be doing a CTA for that soon. Yes, awesome. Well, I will say that although 
2020 has been, let's say, full of surprises. <laughs> One of the positive ones uh, is that I think it uh, like brought this community a bit closer um, and just more active than than it had been maybe in the in the previous month, which is very nice and very welcome. So I will hopefully be seeing uh, more podcasts soon. Um, to that effect, uh, you can all join us on our brand new Discord uh, set up uh, partly uh, thanks to Zach here. Uh, I guess there are links uh, pretty much everywhere, but we can include more in the descriptions. Um, so if you want to chat about this episode or other things like A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, and lots of other fandoms, you can join us, join us and you can also always um, join the conversation on YouTube and leave a nice comment uh, to us. That's always appreciated. Um, well, thank you guys for joining me today. This has been fun. And thank you to all of our listeners uh, for uh, actually listening to us talk. <laughs> thank you, Marie, for making this happen so much. It's really yeah, been fun. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like yeah, thank, thank you for you. pulling me out of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that, that we could have uh, both you and Tanya, uh, who I hadn't podcasted in a while with. So that's great. And uh, I guess we got to say thanks to, yeah, we're going to say, uh, we got to say thanks to Bina who actually suggested this and said like, oh, Marie, you should, you should take the lead on this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it happened. And uh, well, I'm excited, excited for the rest of the books, uh, which is going to be uh, happening soon. All right, everyone. Uh, I think I've said everything. Uh, thank you again to everyone. And we'll, we'll cover chapters 7 through to 12 next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.